Welcome back to the, what are we in, September 2019 episode of Discourse. I am David Robertson and I'm joined today by Alan Thomas and Vivian Asimos. Would you please introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, hi everyone. Uh, as David was saying, my name's Salad. I've recently completed my PhD at The Open University and my research is on Scientology and more specifically Scientology outside the institutionalised church. Um, I'm Vivian. I also just finished my PhD but at Durham University um, where I studied virtual storytelling, particularly looking at horror stories both online and in video games. And as ever, the format of discourse is to take a critical look at religion in the news. And uh, like The Who, this week, or this month, we are live in Leeds at the BASR Conference 2019, which you'll probably hear loads about on the RSP over the next four or five months. Um, we're I think we're going to kick off with Zelda. Is that right? Is that the plan? Yeah, yes. I think so. Yeah, I think we could probably good. talk about Zelda for ages. Yes. So, you well, know, we'll, we'll, you'll okay. have to shut me up. But. You've have a long special. <laughs> we, we have half an hour, so, you know, that's ten minutes. This each. is going to be your first two-hour episode. <laughs> Take it away. Uh, so, Breath of the Wild 2 was announced recently. Um, yes. And for, it's exciting. Yes. Uh, but what I think is really fascinating about it is, uh, for people who don't know much about the franchise, it started in 1986, um, and you can go down a crazy YouTube rabbit hole following Zelda theories about their mythology, about the religion and religions uh, that might exist throughout all the different timelines of Hyrule. Um, and all of this has been continuing, um, doing, you know, basically frame by frame of the trailer that was maybe what? Two minutes? A minute 30? Yes, yes, there are votes. Yeah. And they're still, I mean, they're expanding on this for episodes and episodes and episodes of this kind of stuff. So I thought it would be fun to, okay, and, to chat and about. Can you, yeah, tell us about this mythology then, this religious history? Well, Vivian will obviously be able to tell you more because <laughs> I, I'm I'm a fan of the series who happens to be a scholar of religion, whereas Vivian is a scholar of Zelda, which is obviously super cool. Um, but Stop! <laughs> but what I really like about the Zelda series in terms of religiosity is how Nintendo, who make the Legend of Zelda games, have essentially used religious ideas to keep the franchise going because for those who don't know this the games involve the hero typically named link and a princess named zelda um but simply because these characters are in all the games apart from a couple which zelda is not in um now we're getting very nerdy <laughs> let's um, just skip over that <laughs> but they're necessarily uh, they're not necessarily the same link and zelda they're reincarnations and this is how Nintendo is able to justify making worlds bigger or setting the characters in different scenarios because they are essentially cursed. They and the third part of the Triforce, Ganon or Ganondorf, depending on the game you're playing, are cursed to relive their battle throughout history. So it starts uh, chronologically in The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword, where Demise, who is the initial form of Ganon, curses Link and Zelda that they will have to repeat that battle. And that's why Nintendo are then able to churn out more games using these characters, but in 
different worlds, different times, and often with different personalities. We've seen many Zeldas with different personalities. Yeah, and um, that first, uh, well, the first chronological game being Skyward Sword is one of the more interesting ones to look at from the narrative perspective because it's the only one where the kind of the divinities essentially are directly interacting and um, all the rest of them are like, oh, this is the hero of the goddess and that's like their main reference. But in that game, their demise is a god and um, you have the goddess Hylia, which is working through Zelda as well as having her own force. So you actually have the direct kind of divine combat that these humans are just kind of caught up in and yet get dragged throughout. Although I guess they're not technically humans, they're Hylians. <laughs> and I think I'm right in saying that Zelda herself is Hylia throughout the incarnation. She yes. is, but, but she doesn't necessarily know this. She's also Hylian slash human. Well, and this is, this is really interesting because Hylia in some instances is seen as kind of, you know, ultra goddess and in breath of the wild um to kind of bring it back to that one um you only have one goddess uh that is constantly referenced and it's the goddess statues that you can go and pray at and it's typically the representation of hylia however there's this understanding that there were three goddesses who created the world initially and they're seen as basically above hylia which almost has a weird hierarchical structure where it's not just gods and nothing else it's like gods and then maybe hylia is not Quite goddess, but spirit goddess? Oh, I it's... assumed that Hylia was above the three that created the world. I, See... I assumed they were <laughs> Hylia's agents. In some instances, that's true. And in some, it's not. Because the the three goddesses created the world and then just kind of left. And in some instances, it can kind of be seen similarly to the... Um, uh, some of the Afro-Caribbean religions, you can kind of see relationships to it where the, you know, you have one God and he created the world, but then he just left, you know, mm -hmm. and the rest of it is kind of managed by the Lua. Um, and it's kind of, to me, that's how I at least interpreted it, that these three goddesses created the world and then just left. And Hylia was the one that was in charge of making sure everything didn't, didn't but, <laughs> go away. But they left the Triforce. Which they did leave the Triforce. Tell us more about the Triforce, Vivian. Okay, so the three goddesses, um, as they left the um, the the world um, in order to go back into the sacred realm, they left uh, the Triforce, and it's an actual physical thing that they left there of three golden triangles. And if someone touches these triangles, then they get a wish granted to them. But in order to have that wish granted to them, they have to have an equal balance of wisdom, power, and courage. And if they don't, the Triforce breaks. Um, and then you have to reassemble the people who are then embodying one of those aspects. And what's really interesting about the Triforce is that um, there are actually many fans who have the Triforce tattooed on them. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these people during my field work, when I talked to them, they said they liked it because it reminded them to live their life with an equal balance of wisdom, power, and courage. Um, so there's obviously this kind of crossing. of It's really fun to sit and talk about the myths of Zelda as this fun game that you play, but there is something there that people take out of the game and into their everyday life, and it changes the way they interact with the world around them. It's also really interesting to see the way people can draw such meaning from 
games that I've always enjoyed the narrative of, but some critics would dismiss as quite simplistic and repetitive. Yes. Narratively. And that, I mean, and that's, as you said, this, uh, you know, Nintendo kind of got away with this very repetitive narrative structure, but it's based on the lore. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they kind of it's gave themselves an out. The repetitiveness is, is necessary almost now in a way. There might be a point, though, about textual analysis, thinking over how a series, for instance, of, of, um, products created by different people over a long period of time need a larger mythology to be embedded in in order to make them all fit into the same story. So, for instance, the fact that you have four highly contradictory Gospels and people have gone to great lengths to think of larger contexts into which they can be reconciled or, you know, at the contradictory uh, other contradictory passages in the Old Testament, New Testament, and Judaism as a whole tradition of trying to work out contradictory aspects. Um, the uh, so I think that rather than go, oh, games, we can look at them a bit like a religion, let's turn it the other way around. And it's not just games, it's things like, let's look at the way that the Batman or Superman mythologies have changed dramatically over the 50, 60 years of been telling them. The number of times Superman's origin or Batman's origins have been reworked to fit in with with um, uh, with later changes and developments in the narrative. And perhaps that's a large part of how these relatively simple little stories um, develop into much larger complex mythologies. There's also something really important about the fact that we don't buy into every narrative that's sold to us. Um, Joseph Laycock's written a really great paper about um, He-Man and how the the figure of He-Man, because, you know, for people who don't know, cartoons back in the day used to be made purely in order to sell uh, toys. So the He-Man toy existed before it was He-Man. Uh, in fact, he was a surfer dude, I think, because of he's got surfer dude hair. Um, and they tried to sell him as a surfer guy, and he even had little bits uh, to try to, you know, other bits of media to try to sell the fact that this toy is a surfer guy, and no one bought it. Um, they brought in myth specialists to create He-Man. And mm. suddenly it sold a lot. The toy didn't change. Yeah. But what changed was the narrative and the fact that even children can discern a good story. And that's what they'll buy into. Um, and I think that's uh, something really important about media in general. Um, a lot of times people see consumerism as kind of the evil. It comes up a lot at least when I give presentations at conferences, and I've seen it quite a few times at this conference, that the question, there's always a question in the audience of, yes, but is this just consumerism? And I find that the question of it being just well, yeah, the consumerism. Operative, the operative word in the sentence is just. Exactly. The person asking it has already made a value judgment. No. And th that there is, mm. there's always that, that idea that art and consumerism cannot live together. Um, but of course they have to live together because artists need to make a living. Mm -hmm. And pay rent. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's definitely, um, you're discernible. People who are consumers aren't just passive 
people who suddenly gouge money out and buy things that they don't really think about. They think about the things that they want to buy. And the fact that Zelda series, particular to go back to our primary discussion point, is so popular, is still talked about a lot, is still bought into, people still play the original 1986 game, um, that says something about that story. And, and as simple as it is, maybe that simplicity that is leaves a lot of room for interpretation for these YouTubers to sit and really delve on and pick apart. That's what really sells it as a story. And it's it's not only the strength of the individual narrative, it's something to do with the way that that narrative presents broader possibilities. So if you think about the way that something like Predator or Alien or you know, start the first Star Wars film hint at something much bigger that means that people are automatically start imagining what those things were and filling in bigger blanks. So it's it's to do with the way that it provides the opportunity for more stories. Yeah, and that's where a lot of um, a lot of fandoms of anything, not just gaming, not just Zelda, not but you know of Alien, of Terminator, and all these of things. Jesus. Uh, yes. Quite a popular um, franchise. <laughs> <laughs> but they Only one book, but it's sold really well. No, there's a lot I mean, of there's other probably books. quite a few. <laughs> there's quite a lot. There's a lot of unofficial <laughs> ones, and actually, we're we're discovering some ones that there's were lots of fan fiction. That's yeah. <laughs> and there's ones that have been out of print for a number of centuries, like uh, Thomas and things like that. Um, but they these narratives um, and these fandoms actually expand on the stories and try to create their own narratives that build onto the the original one, and you see. Um, essentially creativity that's able to to flourish. And sometimes the stories that don't do as well are the ones that don't allow that mm-hmm. individual creativity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long-running series of games. It's been a long-running conversation already. Um, talking about other things which give the possibility for more stories, you wanted to talk about Brexit. Austerity. Oh, okay. Well, the two are intertwined. All right, okay, so I didn't pick it up completely wrong. Austerity. Austerity, yes, yes. We'll park Brexit aside for for five minutes for the relief of our listeners. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Um, Yes, I've I've been quite interested recently, and um, I've been reading about it in various places, and I only recently found an article on a website called Premier Christianity, which is an online magazine uh, of cross-Christianity activities, that I found quite interesting, and it concerns the issue of austerity, which is something that the UK has been living under austerity politics now, arguably since 2008, since the bankers' crash and uh, the fall of Lehman Brothers, where there has been um, a stop of funding to the welfare state and state support has been slashed in order to cut what's known as the deficit, the debt that the country is in. Um, What has then happened is that activists or um, people who are interested in human rights have been politically active in responding to this. And at the centre of these responses is religion. Because um, even beyond the idea of somebody may be influenced by their faith to want to help fellow human beings and therefore would want to tackle some of the hardships people have to live under through austerity. Um, Religious groups and Christianity has caught my attention here. Um, 
have bonded together to be able to combat this. So um, in particular, I've been reading about uh, Christians Against Poverty, which is a cross-Christians uh, charity, uh, Christianity, sorry, charity that uh, aims to tackle poverty, whether that's through supporting people who are relying on food banks, but also uh, involving protest. There's another charity called Christian Action on Poverty, which uh, runs a program called Food Power, which uh, aims to um, tackle hunger issues, visit your local pantry or food banks. And this is all directly related to the faith of the people who join these movements because they feel that their faith compels them to help other people, that um, it's it's a framework by which they should live by and that they feel that austerity uh, flies in the face of um so but yes what's quite interesting about it is for me is the cross christianities aspect in that they say that they have uh, catholic church or even evangelical churches uh, signing up to their programs to distribute their materials their leaflets um some uh, seminars and so on so um yes i'll stop rambling for a moment and i'll let other people chip in with any thoughts they may have a, f- a few thoughts I'm still formulating them into formal questions. Um, Is there a sense in which, though the opportunity to do these works is a kind of a positive thing? Like they're being given an opportunity here to, 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 to do good works, to demonstrate their faith, to carry out, uh, you know, um, to carry out good works, I suppose I'm repeating myself. Um, but um, and also to work with other Christian groups and mm. show the you know the benefits and the positivity of of uh, being Christian and Christianity. So is there not you know whilst it's something they're against, it's also kind of good for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yes, it is in the sense that um, they're firstly in the public domain, they're able to promote what they stand for. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, you know, they have very sleek looking websites, very, and, you know, very positive, happy looking people on them doing activism, making the community a better place. And it does, uh, challenge some of that, um, perception some people may have of Christians being predominantly older, conservative types who may not be interested in issues such as austerity. Um, having said that, of course, the, Genuine problems that are being caused by hysterity aren't really a good thing, but is it a silver lining for them? I suppose is yeah. Well, it's, it's mixed motivations, I would say. Yes. Um, I'm also. I mean, that would have been my second question. Would have been that there must be some clash between uh, this, shall we say, strong conservative support for Christian good works. You know, I mean, these sort of. Um, mostly wealthier uh, Christians are more likely to be conservative voters. And yet this is a conservative policy here. Yes, yes. But their activism tends to be things like donating to the Salvation Army and and donations. And there's plenty of Christian charities that have, have, have donations. What I find interesting about these movements that are based around austerity is they're about getting out knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. being politically active, going to rallies. Um, it's it's far more 
it requires far more commitment. For, I'm not saying it's exclusive to young people. It's not to people of all ages. But um, it requires a level of dedication more than a direct debit payment to the Salvation Army every month. Mm-hmm. Is there any sense of looking at the American context? Because, I mean, I can't speak historically, but my experience, at least since I was growing up there, was um, there was always issues. (laughs) I think we've had austerity for quite a while. Um, There's not a lot of help. And that role is always filled by a church organization, pretty much. Mm. And... Basically, now there's kind of this understanding from the government that they don't need to fill those roles anymore because the charities are taking care of it. Mm. Um, But because of just the amount of time that they've spent, like I I worked at a food bank, which was supposed to be it was just a general food bank, but it was essentially run by the church, the local church. And everyone who was there was church members. And when, when you signed in, you had to write what church you belonged to. And I didn't belong to one. I belonged to a Buddhist temple and it confused them. (laughs) But I mean, this is, but so there's obviously that kind of thing happening in America that has been happening for a while. And so I'm curious if they were looking kind of at that model when they started the process. I don't know if you can get the sense of that from looking at your stuff, but it's an interesting idea. Yes, I I definitely, I'm not going to pretend to have an Mm. an answer to that. In fact, this is something that I'm considering as my next research project as I move on from my PhD studies and my book. It's quite Uh, possible, though. I mean, there was certainly, when uh, the move to austerity happened, it was quite consciously... Um, I mean, it was written in that this was a move away from the state providing these things for the slack to be taken up by the charity sector, specifically mentioning religious organizations. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it it's definitely a move which fosters uh, religious organizations to to take an active role here. And yes, it's their responsibility because they're the do-gooders. Yeah. And yeah. um, well, privatization. We know that religion is about doing nice things, right? So um, we should <laughs> let course. religions do the nice things, not the state, which is secular. And mm. That's the bad things. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because to go back to the American example, Trump's core supporters are the evangelicals. Mm-hmm. But Trump himself has, has surrounded himself with a cabinet that is concerned with privatization and. Um, he has CEOs of uh, various companies that uh, frack or impose uh, austerity-like conditions on their employees, but he still maintains that evangelical support, mm-hmm. who then, as Vivian was saying, it's the churches that then do the charity work. There's that inter- interesting aspect of them picking up the slack while the government goes for an increasingly... I would be interested to see what kinds of churches are picking up the slack versus what churches yes. are, as you said, just writing a check to Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. Um, because that would be really interesting to see. Is it, the, are they the same groups? or the age group. Are they very different groups mm-hmm. of people that are, are engaging with this? Mm-hmm. But as David was saying, you know, is it a positive thing for them in the sense that 
you know, it is challenging that idea of the Salvation Army donations because mm-hmm. it, it it is almost refreshing to see energetic groups of uh, Christians out on the streets engaging with with the things that they read about in the Bible, mm-hmm. in, in making society a better place. It is it 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 is good in a PR sense, I suppose. I mean, it's it's written into the law, and the charity commission decides whether you get legally recognised as a, a a religious charity. Um, it includes: Are you doing things for the benefit of the public? You know, this is a this is a built in idea to how um, mo- the modern state separates, uh, you know, real religions and and from you know cults or whatever, but also the secular and and the sacred. Um, and I mean, there's a clear. There's also clearly issues relating to the way that left-wing governments are organised and right-wing governments are organised, where left-wing, all of that stuff is dealt with by the state. So you no longer need um, religious organisations to be involved in those kind of things. Whereas right-wing, by their uh, nature, are about keeping government as small as possible, but therefore you have um, a space where religious organisations can do those works. So... Differently than our possibly modern intuition that, well, religions must support left-wing governments because religions are about being nice and helping people. In fact, religions are far more reliant on right-wing governments because it creates a clear separation of responsibility in the in political and, and private sphere being, you know, religion yes. and state. It's in the left-wing government is far more associated with atheism, historically, for the same yes. reason. yes. I also hasten to add as well that, of course, we do appreciate that the Salvation Army does do a lot of work on the streets. And working <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah, no, I'm, 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 no problem. I'm, I'm not suggesting that these people are out on the streets and the Salvation Army out. What I was rather, what I was rather comparing was how um, these groups based around contemporary austerity encourage people to get out on the streets rather than focusing on donations. That's simply the point I was making yes. there. Yes. Yeah. Just in case there was any uh, confusion. The Religious Studies Project casts no shade on the Salvation Army no, whatsoever, whatsoever. But also the opinions of the guests are not necessarily the opinions <laughs> of the RSP. Um, let's move on to the final story. Uh, we've got a few minutes yet. Um, and this is about uh, Beleskin House. Um, which is on the north shore of Loch Ness, uh, near the town I grew up in, Inverness. Um, And this is a story that's been circulating the local press in the Highlands and also um, in the sort of pagan community, but not... hasn't really... I haven't heard any other religious studies academics mention it. There's a few interesting things going on here, so I'm going to try and tell the story... um, Relatively quickly, I know that there's things that Alad definitely will want to comment on. Um, the So, Beleskin House was famously owned by Alistair Crowley. Um, back in the early 20th century, he lived there on and off for a period of time. This is when he still had his inheritance money. Uh, from the Crowley Brewery and and kept more than one home. He famously used it to uh, stage a very long ritual called um, the Abramelin Rite, um, which lasted, I think, a month off the top of my head. Um, It was later purchased by Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, who um, is nowadays one of the two 
or he was at one point, um, maybe not now, he was at one point the largest collector of Crowleyania in Britain. Um, but he sold it back in the 1980s, I think. And uh, since uh, after that, it went into private ownership. The owners there didn't want to have anything to do, uh, particularly with the legacy of Alistair Crowley, who remains, to put it mildly, a controversial figure. Um, however, it was seriously damaged in a fire in 2015 where most of the roof uh, was damaged and collapsed and uh, <clears throat> a lot of the interior is damaged. But the exterior shell was still um, was still there. Um, the, the then owners looked to sell it and it was purchased... Um, it was ev eventually put on the market in 2019 and uh, it was purchased by, uh, what are they called? The Beleskin House Foundation, um, who described themselves as a not-for-profit group aimed at restoring and maintaining the Beleskin House estate. And they started talking about how they were going to restore it and hopefully open it to the public as a, as a museum, at least, and possibly, uh, possibly holiday homes on the property and things like that. Um, the rumour immediately started to spread amongst the pagan community as to who uh, the Beleskin House Foundation, who was putting the money up. Um, and a number of people suggested that it was <clears throat> a front for the Ordo Templi Orientis, uh, which was one of the religious organisations which Crowley founded. Um, there are obvious reasons why, if that had been true, they would have wanted to avoid putting their name onto the prophet. Um, most obviously is the ongoing association with Crowley and, uh, you know, as a black magician or, you know, even as he's often referred to as a Satanist. Um, he wasn't, but nonetheless, the, the association continues. Um, but they also the Ordo, Ordo Templi Orientis do practice sexual magic, which, um, again, is is going to be quite controversial in the relatively kind of Calvinistic uh, you know, Highlands of Scotland. Um, it has recently come out that the owners are, um, it was private individuals, it wasn't the Ordo Templi Orientis. However, um, the one of the individuals involved was uh, Keith Reedy, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, and his and his wife. He is, um, describes himself as an Alistair Crowley scholar, um, and was the author of a book called One Spirit, One Truth, Alistair Crowley's Spiritual Legacy. So this is not a disinterested party. This is clearly um, someone who's looking to promote uh, Crowley as... Um, I'm going to rephrase that. Someone who is seeking to legitimise Crowley as a religious figure. I, I'm not casting uh, shade one way or another there. Um However, a couple of weeks ago, another fire broke out. There was another uh, arson attack on Beleskin House. Uh, started in two separate sites in Beleskin House itself, the ruins of Beleskin House itself, and in the adjacent gate gatehouse, which is where people have been living um, ever since. Uh, two people have been arrested um, by the uh, Highlands Islands Police. Um, but obviously for me, the suspicion that this was a deliberate attack, uh, is quite, um, 
to prevent uh, a, a building which celebrates the career of a notorious um, uh, Satanist and pederast, shall we say, uh, is certainly a strong possibility. Um, they're intending to continue with the restoration, although obviously there's a lot less to restore than there was when they bought the place. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to... Uh, this isn't something that most people will have heard about, but I think it's an interesting yeah. story. Um, I'm familiar with Alistair Crowley, but this story is completely new to me. Mm. Um, so, really, I, I suppose I have more questions uh, to ask you. The first one, well, rather, this one's a comment, actually. What do you think about it? It's more of a comment than a question, yeah, I know, right? I know. Where's the conference thing? Yeah, ding, yeah. ding. Um, but what you were saying about, you know, is that... Uh, is it a targeted uh, attack on something that's built to, uh, um, I don't want to say praise, but or even to honour, but to even acknowledge this Satanist? Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly sounds premeditated. I'm not, uh, I'm not a police officer, no. obviously, but but if what you were saying about how fires broke out at different Both buildings, parts, yes, yeah. yes, I mean, that's that seems very and two important. arson attacks in a, in a short period of time yeah. as well. Uh, I suppose my first question is: Had it already opened to the public by this point? No, it was still in ruin. They hadn't started the the restoration, but it was about a week or two weeks after it was in the news that it had been bought, and the rumor was circulating that this was a front for the OTO. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Let's put our Sherlock Holmes on hats like on for to, a moment. I was thinking tinfoil. <laughs> to the degree, to the degree that this was, I was, this was a story I was going to mention on the last episode, but the second fire hadn't happened. It like happened the day we were recording, so I was like, I'll, I'll wait and see what happens here. Um, yes. So yeah, well, it sounds interesting to continue following this. Because presumably sooner or later, if these suspects are found guilty, for example, mm-hmm. it, it'll come out why they did it. Or well, it may or it may, may not. not but, uh, yeah, but I, I find it very unlikely that the Highlands and Islands Police will want to, uh, you know, put their necks on the line in defence of of an occultist. Full stop. Yes. I, I suppose rather than seeing it as a defense of an occultist, just to know exactly what's happened. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I would say, well, the police might not, but there are many investigative writers that would probably, as soon as the names are, I don't know if the names mm. are included in the original story, of the, typic, of the suspects, they of, typically no, don't until, it until no, it's a bit no, more on, solid. Online leakers. Um, but yeah, that people will, will dig. As soon uh-huh. as it's, as, and that's that's where those. you'll get yeah. a yes. lot more interesting yes. information, yeah. um, and um, that's where that will come out rather than from the police. And I'm assuming because, as you were saying, it has been restored. That was the was the house empty, or did it contain memorabilia? Um, was anything it, lost? There was references to uh, in uh, the remains of interiors. So, um, I actually there's photographs of as it was before the second. Um, arson attack on my website on davidgrobertson.wordpress.com um, which I, I I snuck into the grounds and took photos uh, but it the one side was far worse damaged than the other so it was like the fire had started over here so most of the roof on one side was there so I think there was in, you know some period interiors left mm. which I now don't think there are what I think is really interesting about this is how um, we're constantly reminded that the um, the the, uh, the cult fear 
uh, let's call it that, peaked in the 1980s for the anti-cult movement. And that's when um, media scrutiny of uh, so-called cults was uh, at its peak. And nowadays the focus is more on radicalization. And what I've always said is that radicalization is simply the brainwashing debate, but with a different name. You're yes. still talking about the same mm-hmm. issues of... Uh, uh, are vulnerable people being drawn into something sinister because they're vulnerable by people with more power. Uh, it's the same conversation, but it's moved on to other movements. I just find it really interesting that there are people who are clearly so passionate about their opposition to Alistair Crowley or to Satanism or to cults per se, that they would do an extreme act, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a crime, a potentially dangerous one. They don't know if there was somebody in there. They mm-hmm. could have been... Um, that while radicalization seems to be the hot topic, it's just really interesting to see that mm-hmm. there's still that anti anti cult, the the old classic cult model, uh, clearly still present and still has an impact on people today. I mean, and it's it's not even that hidden, depending on what you listen to, um, like the the kind of I'm using air quotes for the listeners, the cult kind of fear yes, is yes. is definitely still present especially i listen to a lot of true crime podcasts and they throw around that word cult like it doesn't mean you know of course the R, rs scholar means i was like Ugh, every time but um they yeah, there's last podcast network we're looking at you yeah um but yeah there's there's still quite that th- they'll, they'll pick something they'll say look how bad this cult mm-hmm. is and mm-hmm. and they'll pick it apart even if it's a historical one and they'll try to trace current things um we actually had a class offered this last year at Durham University um, on sex, prophets, and gurus, and that's S-E-C-T-S, um, prophets and gurus. And uh, quite a lot of the discussion was around the, the use of the word cult at the very beginning. And students really struggled because they came in and and they wanted they thought we were going to rip apart these things and talk about brainwashing and that didn't happen mm. because they still think that mm. so it's just it's maybe not a satanic panic but it's still there it's more mm. implicit now but mm. it's it's definitely still there um to, to end on a slightly more positive note though it's interesting that we may actually get some sort of uh I don't want to say shrine, but, you know, one of the historical buildings connected with Crowley, I mean, dislike him or not, he is an incredibly influential figure in the history of 20th century new religions, often overlooked, but a significant role in the formation of um, Scientology and Wicca and and, uh, a less, um, plus his own tradition, Thelema, and and a, a number of uh, fingers and other pies as well. And, and, um, so Beleskin House is ruined. Uh, the temple of Kefalu has been left to go to ruin as well. And a lot of this stuff is disappearing. Um, you know, it, in, in our lifetime. So it will be interesting if, if, uh, there is some sort of lasting memorial, um, just it might start to change the, the conversation, uh, away from the, Sort of uh, radicalization, brainwashing, cult conversation mm, that we're all mm. too used to having. We can only hope. Yes, yes, uh, yes. For the record, every time we've used the word cult, it's, it's been with air quotes. Think of air quotes. <laughs> yes, just picture that. If it's ever transcribed, make sure air quotes are put in, or rather, proper quotes. Yeah, just just air quotes if it's. Yeah, on paper they're just called quotes. Um, 
I'm going to say thanks to you both. Do either of you have anything you want to plug? Maybe, maybe uh, podcast? Yes. So um, I have a podcast. I'm going to be starting a second one soon on myth and anime and video games. So if you liked my conversations about Zelda, there'll be lots more where that <laughs> came from. Um, uh, there's also You're going to be able to find it all on my website, which is god-mode.org. Um, just everything's there. Uh, yes, I'm... I'm trying to build up my Twitter presence whether discussing things to do with the study of religions or tweeting pictures of cats. If you're interested in either, feel free to follow me at Thomas. And I've also set up a blog. Uh, it's called holyscripturesoftheshoppingmall.com. Uh, Ten points if you get the reference. If you don't, I'm very disappointed. But even if you don't get the reference anyway, please do check it out. I write about <laughs> contemporary religion. And I'm also welcoming people to submit their own blog posts if they are uh, if they feel inclined to do so the website's already had some pretty good traffic if they've got some ideas they'd like to quickly get out into the public domain something very short please get in touch with me and we'll see what we can do thanks for supporting us on patreon and as ever thanks for listening The Religious Studies Project is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's him. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox with marketing managed by Benjamin Marcus. Our Opportunities Digest managed by Ella Bach, podcast transcription by Helen Bradstock and social media managed by Ray Radford. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash project rs and you can find us on facebook twitter youtube itunes and other portals thanks for listening google plus <laughs> doesn't exist anymore nope